episode 5 of The Tarsan's Diplomat, a Canadian satirical diplomatic thriller read by the author Keith Halliday. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to leak the news to a few friends. If you have any comments, please visit keithhalliday.com or email khalliday at tarsansdiplomat.com. And now, podcasting in fine mid-novel form, here's Keith with the next episode. The Tarsan's Diplomat, Chapter 6. A Painful Meeting, Even by the Department Standards. After lunch, half a bottle of Pouligny Montrachet and I strolled pensively along the cobblestones back to the mission. On one hand, lunch had lived up to Jean-Christophe's wildest culinary promises. On the other, staying awake for the remainder of the afternoon would not be easy. Back on the first hand, it was wonderful to see Camille again. However, I hadn't figured out how to ask tactfully if she was romantically entangled with any obnoxious French diplomats or Canadian French fry magnates. On top of that was Camille's insistence that Can-Do Canada was just a front for the tar sands. I'd heard many conspiracy theories over the years about oil industry puppet masters pulling the strings of the Foreign Service. I generally dismissed these tales, since no oil executive ever asked me to do anything untoward. I couldn't even recall meeting a Canadian oil executive. Nonetheless, Camille seemed quite certain about it, and she seldom misinformed. I arrived at the mission, took the elevator to the fifth floor, and clicked the code to the outer door. I waved cheerfully to the Belgian staff, who were not authorized to listen to our secret Canadian chit-chat in the secure zone, and clicked my way through the inner door. I walked towards the coffee room, hoping that a strong, if unpalatable, Canadian office coffee might help me stay alert during the Can-Do Canada meeting scheduled in 20 minutes. As I passed the boardroom, however, a voice caught my ear. There he is! It was Cornelia. She was sitting in the boardroom with a half-dozen colleagues and waved me in. I walked in and smiled at my new colleagues only to be stopped in my tracks by a hostile ambassador. We moved the meeting up half an hour. Ambassador Glostrom glared at me. Didn't you get the email? I produced my Blackberry. My battery's dead. Sorry. Well, we've all been waiting for you, said Glostrom with annoyance in his voice. I wondered why they were waiting for me as I slipped quickly into an empty seat. I'd missed half the meeting. This, of course, is why I avoid charging my Blackberry whenever possible. I borrowed a sheet of paper, opened my fountain pen, and looked attentively at my ambassador. Glostrom, despite the reputation for erratic behavior he'd earned as a political science professor and then a cabinet minister, liked to think that he ran a tight ship. Every meeting had an agenda printed and placed in front of each participant. Sometimes he even locked the door when a meeting started, humiliating tardy officers and forcing them to miss the entire event. Unfortunately for me, he wasn't doing it that day, and half the meeting still awaited. As with all the worst ambassadors, he knew something about international affairs. He once taught a course entitled Polysci 399, New Foreign Policy Paradigms for Canadian Middle Powerhood. Then he was opposition critic for foreign affairs before becoming a minister after our national judgment lapse at election time. This meant that, when he was in opposition, he would cower under parliamentary privilege and make libelous offhand remarks about the people who were now his fellow ambassadors. He still enjoyed catching foreign service officers doing things like getting the name wrong for the International Convention on the Protection of Seafloor Transboundary Semi-Sedentary Crustaceans. He was a delight of office anthropology, and I enjoyed watching him perform, as long as he was bullying someone else. Glostrom continued to glare at me for some reason. So did the rest of the staff, except for Julian, who wasn't there. Just passing through Brussels? Asked one of my new colleagues, trying to smile politely. Political consultations on Moldova? Want us to set up a meeting on sugary spread import surges with the Bulgarian desk at the commission? Glostrom had apparently failed to tell anyone I'd be joining the staff. I'm here to replace Fanshawe. I replied, in what I admit were excessively chipper and triumphant tones. When a man escapes Ottawa, you can't expect him to keep quiet about it. 
Yes, said Glostrom, returning his hostile stare to my colleagues. Due to, well, some kind of skiing accident with Smedling. Anyway, Ottawa's sent McGregor over to be the coordinator for Can Do Canada. I spoke to Dorf and Smedling last week, and they were insistent, very insistent, that this trade mission be run by the political councillor. Smedling even set up a large budget under the political councillor's control. My astonishment was matched by that of my colleagues, although I hit it better. The trade commissioners, whose mission is to help Canadian companies export, whether they want to or not, were aghast. McGregor is Candu leader, gasped the trade commissioner, almost spilling his coffee. Of the whole Candu Canada task force? I flinched. There was a task force, and I was its leader? I didn't even know I was on the organizing committee, let alone that someone had given us all overblown quasi-military titles. The trade commissioners in Cornelia, whom I feared constituted my task force, gaped in bewilderment. But we've been working on these files for years, exclaimed another trade commissioner, rather irrelevantly as far as I could see. It's critical this visit go flawlessly, was the obvious point made by another, an inexplicable note of hysterical protest in his voice. Cornelia looked at me in annoyance. Ottawa said there would be more boots on the ground in Brussels, but they didn't say it was you. And you didn't even mention you were can-do leader when we were at the Duchess of Richmond's ball. They all looked at me. Why didn't you circulate an agenda for this meeting? asked one of the trade commissioners accusingly. Glostrom cleared his throat. What did Dorf tell you about your role? he asked. What is the task force budget to be used for? This was getting sticky. Dorf's schedule didn't permit a full briefing before I left Ottawa, I replied. The first trade commissioner leaned forward. Crikey! he exclaimed. I suddenly remembered him. His first posting was in Canberra, and although his accent was Canadian, his word choice was still weirdly Australian. He never pronounced the R in Melbourne. We've got two officers out of action, he exclaimed, and a team lead who doesn't even know he's the team lead. We're buggered. Glostrom scanned his staff with distaste. When he was a minister, he had frisky young political aides at his beck and call. They could leap on any problem, especially a lumbering senior official, like a pack of howling jungle monkeys, and tear it to shreds. Now, he commanded barely half a dozen slumping bad suits. Glostrom's pained glance moved down the table, lingering for a second on Cornelia, before moving on with just the hint of rolling eyes to Kennedy in the next chair. I wondered how I could tactfully tell Cornelia not to sit beside Kennedy at meetings. People couldn't help but make comparisons, and that was not to Cornelia's advantage on either the professional or fashion fronts. Meanwhile, Kennedy sat at the conference table looking fit and alert, ready as required to either provide cogent policy advice or return a serve. She was the same rank as I, although she'd taken far fewer years to reach it. She dressed surprisingly well for an Ottawa apparatchik, especially one not from Montreal. And what the workplace sensitivity people would prefer me to refer to as her athletic figure showed no sign of a Brussels posting. Although she never worked for me when she was junior, she's one of those officers over whom I've tried, from time to time, to extend a protective wing. She and I used to practice our Russian on each other, and her German is much superior to mine. She was clever, sensible, and full of energy, but had surprisingly few friends at the department. Junior staff accused her of keeping them captive in their cubicles while she monopolized the quality time with top mandarins. Her peers viewed her as a corridor cougar, likely to drop on them suddenly from above while they were wandering the halls foraging for the usual bureaucratic nuts and berries. It was unfair and probably due to jealousy over her talents and good looks. I'd already heard Cornelia and the locally engaged secretaries muttering bitingly about how Kennedy chose sleeveless shirts to show off the toned muscles in her arms. She was unusual in the service in that she invested time to stay fit, unlike most of us who slip instantly from late 20s to early 50s. She looked like an older sister to the mission's sporty Icelandic Canadian stagiaire, not a bureaucrat more than a decade older. 
But while trade commissioners ignored the stagiaire's economics major and instead moaned and bit their knuckles as she roved the hallways, they were too intimidated by Kennedy to do anything except agree with whatever she said at meetings. Everyone knew that she did taekwondo and had dislocated the shoulder of the director of the Japan desk when they were in self-defense class doing that drill where one person acts like a zombie and tries to attack the second person with a rubber knife. Everyone's eyes swiveled to Kennedy as she cleared her throat. Ambassador, if it's helpful, I could pick up some slack on Can-Do Canada, she said. That would give McGregor capacity for political reporting and other files. Thank you, exclaimed Glostrom and I simultaneously. Before we could say anything else, the door opened silently and a man entered the room, pulling his black roller bag noiselessly behind him on the thick carpet. Conversation froze as he scanned us expressionlessly. Cornelia rose unconsciously to offer him her chair, but he waved her off and stood behind the two cowering trade commissioners. I shifted uncomfortably in my chair as I recognized Dirk Beddo, the fixer from the Privy Council Office's international section. The Privy Council Office is the Department of Permanent Officials that reports directly to the Prime Minister. All the recent Prime Ministers have insisted on having a small section of their own to do the same foreign policy work that we do at the Department. Beto used to be a Foreign Service officer before he joined this Praetorian Guard. Now he arrives to restore order whenever the sound of the circus music at an embassy becomes so loud even the Prime Minister can hear it. His modus operandi is to stalk around the department, mocking our work and looking for former colleagues to brick into walls. He knew me from a few different embassy visits. His dully dangerous gaze lingered on me for an overlong moment, like that of a KGB interrogator who's bumped into one of his former interviewees in a Moscow supermarket. But he ignored me and fixed his stare on the ambassador. As a professional career assassin, he doesn't waste time in idle civilities until he's figured out whether you're one of the officers whose heads he'll be pulling a hood over as a prelude to dragging them off to a long, harmless spell of French language training back home. The ambassador seemed to shrink a size in his chair. I, I didn't know you were arriving today, said Glostrom, trying not to appear flustered. Beto ignored Glostrom's quibbles about his travel schedule. I thought Julian was in here. I need him for our, you know, little project, said Beto, looking around. The ambassador continued to stare at Beto. Kennedy stood up. Julian's not here. I can help you. Yes, thanks for your help last week, but it was Julian I needed today. Kennedy pursed her lips and sat down. Even Cornelia could sense her mortification. Kennedy ignored everyone and opened her file, selected a document, and began to read something with intense interest. Beto left the room. Glostrom seemed shaken and began mumbling about new foreign policy paradigms. But he was interrupted again, this time by the entrance of Craig Ravinsky from the Prime Minister's office. He too was carrying an overnight bag, as if he'd just arrived. I recognized Ravinsky from Ottawa's most obnoxious scandal magazine. The editor liked to deliberately misspell his Ukrainian-Canadian name, and generally portrayed him as a crazed Stalinist political commissar ready to shoot anyone who didn't clap loudly enough at the Prime Minister's speeches. He was blonde and looked about 30 years old. He really was a pool cleaner before he joined the Prime Minister's office. According to Ottawa legend, he was a keen Ukrainian-Canadian and had changed the spelling of his name from Gruinsky, which is how some Canadian customs officials spelled it when his grandfather immigrated, to the more authentically Ukrainian Ravinsky. He was fanatic enough to get his bus driver's license so he could drive loads of Ukrainian-Canadian senior citizens to the polls in the last election. He was also supposed to be the mastermind behind the anonymous emails circulated in the Ukrainian community attacking a prominent opposition candidate which used out-of-context video clips from the candidate's history book interviews to portray him as anti-Ukraine, pro-Stalin, and worst of all, a big city snob about Ukrainian folk dancing. Ravinsky scanned the room expressionlessly. We're looking for some twink. Did Beto find him? 
he said to the ambassador. He ignored the rest of us as he grabbed a pan of chocolat from the plate in front of Cornelia and crammed it nearly whole down his pastry hole. His manner was beginning to make me nervous. The kind of political aide who calls officials twinks to their faces and eats their pan au chocolat probably enjoys burning ants with magnifying glasses and torturing foreign service officers. Cornelia's mouth was hanging slightly open as she stared at Kravinsky. I'm afraid she didn't get much exposure to powerful political aides when she served with me in the minor Eastern European statelets section. Uh, yes, stuttered Glostrom, responding to Kravinsky's question about the missing twink. Remember that he's supposed to work on Can Do Canada too, not just your venture. Don't worry, I'll get you a new one from French training if he gets broken, said Ravinsky, selecting two more pastries for the road. Does your office have one of those spy phones? The ambassador nodded uncertainly. Good, I love those. Tell Beto I'll be in your office. We'll use it as our team room. My office, muttered the ambassador, but Ravinsky had already disappeared. Why did the political staff call us twinks? What venture? And why is he using the ambassador's office? And why did he take three donuts without asking? Cornelia asked querulously. She has an uncanny ability to derail negotiations by saying out loud what everyone around the table was keeping to themselves. But Glostrom didn't answer. He was too busy sweating. That concludes episode five. Thanks for listening. Check iTunes next week for episode six. If you're enjoying the Tarsan's Diplomat, please tell a friend or leave a review on amazon.ca.